Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Proud of that. Maybe you're on a member of a board of directors somewhere, and you're you're proud of that. Maybe you serve on city council, or maybe uh, maybe you're a member of Mensa, the High IQ Society for for geniuses. You know, you're a member of that maybe, and you know these are all organizations to be uh, very proud of being a part of. But it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, the greatest honor that could ever come to any person is to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe how valuable and how important it is to be a member of God's church? Well, it it might seem strange to you that we're going to see the significance of that in a book like Obadiah, but that's what we're going to consider here from this tiny little New Testament book. As you know, we are going through the Bible here through this Route 66 sermon series, uh, looking at all 66 books of the Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis, moving toward Revelation. We're now in the section called the Minor Prophets, and now we reach the minorest of all the Minor Prophets because it's the shortest of the Minor Prophets. In fact, this is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. Uh, We might also think of it as a minor book because we don't know anything about it. I mean, my guess would be hardly anybody. I know there's a few seminary-educated people in our congregation who might know a few things about Obadiah, but um, most of you probably know nothing. It gets very little attention. This is not a book that we generally memorize. We don't put scriptures from Obadiah on our refrigerator very often. But nonetheless, this is a book inspired by the Spirit of God that has words of encouragement for us in the year 2019. And so this is the book we'll be looking at. Some basic information about Obadiah, written by Obadiah, we believe, the prophet of God. We don't really know much about this person at all. There's no information given to us. We believe the book written between 586 and 553 B.C., so five, six hundred years before the coming of Christ. Uh, Significant events, there's really no historical events referred to specifically here in the book. Uh, And themes... Well, you'll recognize these because these things have been repeated throughout these minor prophets, day of the Lord, judgment, and in particular, God's reign over the nations. So what is very central to the book of Obadiah is the relationship between Israel, of course, and a nation called Edom, E-D-O-M. That's very significant for this book. We have to understand something about Edom if we're going to understand Obadiah. So here's a map. Uh, I've been telling you a lot about how the nation of Israel was divided into two nations, Israel in the north, capital Samaria, and Judah in the south, capital Jerusalem. I've been showing you about the history of the kings from both nations, a few good kings in Judah, but mostly bad and pretty much all bad kings in Israel. But for many years, the two were separated. But you'll look down here and you'll see the kingdom of Edom. So this is a nation that's just south of Judah, and it, get, it has central focus here in this book of Obadiah. Um, who is Edom, or where does Edom come from? Um, you, you'll know more about this maybe than you realize. Here's where Edom came from. You remember Abraham, 
Abraham was the man that God chose to form the nation of Israel. We learned about him in Genesis chapter 12. God came to Abraham. Abraham married Sarah, or was, uh, his wife was Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah together had a son named Isaac and a son named Jacob. And Jacob had a son, excuse me, Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob and Esau are brothers, both born to Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And from Esau came the Edomites. From Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. So the descendants of Jacob are Israel. The descendants of Esau are the Edomites. So when we read through Obadiah, you'll need to kind of view it through that lens. When you see the word Israel or Jacob referring to the same people. When you see the words Esau or Edom also referring to the same people. Okay? So, um, you, know, you know the little bit of the history between Jacob and Esau, two guys who didn't get along very well, and we're going to see that play out here in the book of Obadiah. So, um, <clears throat> we're going to read the whole book, the whole entire book of Obadiah, which is all of 21 verses. Um, but we're going to read this in little chunks. So if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read just the first nine verses to get us started. First nine verses of Obadiah. <clears throat> it says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed, prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Let's just stop there. God, we pray, please give us wisdom, understanding into your word now as we study this prophet by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So how, how does this relate to the, the privilege and honor that it is to be part of the people of God? The first thing I want to show you from this is that God destroys the world's pride. That's a very clear principle here in this book. God destroys the world's pride. This is Edom's problem. They're prideful. Verse 1, you can see, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. So very clear, that's who Obadiah is talking about. But in verse 2, we see what Edom's problem is. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Why? Verse 3, the pride of your heart 
has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Edom had this attitude that they were indestructible. That's why at the end of verse 3, they would say, who will bring me to the ground? That was kind of the attitude of Edom. Nobody can stop us. We are this powerful nation. We are unassailable. We are indestructible. There was a pride in their hearts, a haughtiness about them. It just made me think of Muhammad Ali. Some of you remember the great boxer who was known for boasting all the time and talking about how great he was. And one of his little sayings was this. He said, I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast, I can't possibly be beat. That's Muhammad Ali, and that kind of captures the attitude of Edom here. We can't possibly be beat. And the reason that they were so prideful, we see in verse 3, is in particular because of the place of Edom. It it was where they were located. Uh, So it says in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, your lofty dwelling. Verse 4, you soar aloft like Uh, The eagle, your nest is among the stars. What that's referring to is the fact that Edom was located in a very high place. They were about 5,000 feet above sea level in a very mountainous region. And so it was a difficult place to get to. In fact, some parts were uninhabitable, but some places were. And that's where the nation of Edom was. But in Edom's mind, they were beyond reach by any of their enemies. But they were also prideful because of their wisdom. There was this reputation that Edom had. If you look in verse 8, scoot ahead a little bit. God says, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, the understanding out of Mount Esau. You might remember Job and his counselors. One of his counselors was named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz was uh, considered to be a wise person. He was coming to give all of his wisdom to Job. Well, Eliphaz was from Edom. So Edom had this reputation of being this smart, intelligent, wise people. And so they were proud. We're inaccessible. We're safe up here. We're wise. We're intelligent. We're great. Nobody can topple us. But you know what? There is hardly anything that God hates more than pride. The scripture says in many places, things like this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God hates pride. And so what God says here in verse 4 to Edom, at the end of verse 4, he says, okay, you're set up there in your lofty place, Edom, but from way up there, I am going to bring you down. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? I'm bringing you down, Esau, your pride will not prove to be well-founded. He, he goes on and he describes what this is going to be like. He says uh, in verse 5, he's giving some descriptions of what this is going to look like. He says, if thieves came to you or plunderers by night, how you would have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? What he's saying is if somebody comes and robs your house, they're going to steal what they can, and then they're going to get out of there. They're not going to steal everything. They're going to leave some things behind. And also at the end of verse 5, grape gatherers, if they came to you, won't they not leave gleanings? That is, when people go out and harvest grapes, they're going to leave some behind for the poor, because that's what the Scriptures commanded. 
So thieves will leave some behind. Grape gatherers will leave something behind. But when God brings Edom down, nothing's going to be left behind. That's the idea. I'm going to bring you totally down. Verse 6, even your treasures will be sought out. Those things that you put behind in secret and you think nobody can find them, God will find them and God will bring those things down too. That's how much God hates pride. Edomites, proud people. Americans, proud people. Right? We're proud to be American. Now, is there a place for patriotism? Is there a place for for love of country and nation? Is there a place for being a loyal citizen in your country? Absolutely. I think there is. But there is a pride that goes so far as to think that we are an indestructible people that is an offense to God. Do you remember, we've been hearing a lot in July about the the moon landing, 50th anniversary of the moon landing, 1969. The United States put a man on the moon, amazing accomplishment. Another reason for American pride, I guess. Well, one of the reasons that we were able to put a man on the moon is because we were competing with a nation called the USSR, the Soviet Union. And it was our competition desire to outshine them that made us make sure we got a guy on the moon, and we did. So those were the two great superpowers in the world at that time, the United States and the Soviet Union. You know what? The Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, if you question whether God can really bring down nations and empires, just remember the USSR was considered the same as Edom thought of themselves, indestructible and unassailable. And now they don't even exist. Now here we are, the United States, one of the remaining superpowers, and it's easy for us as Americans to be proud of our freedom and our wealth and our uh, military. And yet, friends, we should not think for a moment that God can't bring us down too. God can bring us down. Do you know that? Are you prepared for that? That there's no guarantee that the United States is going to last forever? Do a Google search and look at it. People are saying the United States could be done in 15 years. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily true. There's always somebody predicting the sky is falling. The United States could last for hundreds of years, but to the degree that we are proud in ourselves like Edom, we could be brought down. And here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Where is your sense of security? Where is your, your, your most, uh, you know, where, your, where is your pride found most of all? You know, even a sanctified version of pride. I mean, are, are you proud more to be part of the American people or more proud to be part of God's people? Are are you more proud to be a citizen of the United States or more proud to be a citizen of heaven? There's so much more security in our membership in the people of God than in our national declarations and allegiances. So God destroys the world's pride. But then we get a second thing here, and that is this, that God defends his beloved people. God defends his people. So Jacob and Esau are the two brothers in the Old Testament. These are two guys that never got along. Classic example of sibling rivalry. (laughs) 
guys always at each other's throats, and so the descendants of Jacob are Israel, the descendants of Esau are Edom, and then we have in the Old Testament many examples of the tension that existed between these two groups of people. So for instance, back in Numbers chapter 20, this is after Israel has been uh, freed from Egypt, and God has promised, Israel, you're going to go to the promised land. And Israel is traveling, and they're, they're headed in that direction. And they get to Edom, and they want to travel across Edom so they can get to the promised land. And they say to Edom, they say, look, can we please come through your land? We won't go through any of your vineyards. We won't take any of your food. We won't even drink any of your water. We won't even go to your wells. All we want to do is cut through. Can we do that, please? And Edom says, no. And so Israel responds, look, you know, we won't harm a thing. It would really be helpful if we could cut through here, take just a little bit of time, and we'll leave you alone. And then at the second request, Edom responds by bringing out a huge army to stand in front of Israel as a way of demonstrating, no, we are not cooperating with you. You can't come through. And so that's just an example of the tension between these two. And then there's another time later at about 587 B.C., that was when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem. We've been hearing a lot about that. 587 B.C., these enemy attackers come in to destroy Israel, and there's Edom. I showed you, just south. There's Edom, nearby, close by, blood relatives of Israel. Edom could very easily come in and help Israel, and you know Israel could have used the help and would have loved the help. And what does Edom do? Nothing. And they just stand by and they watch their blood relatives be pillaged by the Babylonians. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. You can stay seated. I'm going to start with verse 10. Read to verse 14. So here's what God says. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their Calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over the survivors in the day of distress. So here's what God is telling Edom. He's saying, I, I've seen what you've done. You know, I know these are commands like don't do these things like they're future things, but he's speaking about things that have already happened. He's saying you shouldn't have done these things. And we see there's kind of a progression in the severity of the sin. First of all, the problem with Edom is that they were passive. They didn't do anything. Verse 10 and 11. Violence done to your brother Jacob. That's Israel, remember. Violence was done. That's speaking of the Babylonian invasion. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers, Babylonians that is, carried off his wealth, the foreigners, the Babylonians, they entered the gates, they cast lots for Jerusalem, and you were like one of the Babylonians, Edom, because you just stood by and you didn't do anything. You didn't help your brother. So first of all, they're totally passive. 
And so God condemns Edom for that. But then it moves on. Then secondly, we see that Edom kind of started to gloat over the demise of Israel. In verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother, that is Israel, blood-brother relation there, in the day of his misfortune, again referring to uh, the Babylonian invasion, do not rejoice at this time. I mean, I think you all know what it's like to have an experience where your enemy gets shut down or loses or gets in a bad spot and inside your heart you're a little bit glad, you're kind of rejoicing. Well, that's what Edom was doing. They're rejoicing in the fact that Israel has been looted by Babylon, and so they gloated. But then it goes one step further. They actually even betrayed the Israelites, their blood brothers, verse 14. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You remember the movie Schindler's List from many years ago, Oscar Schindler, um, this German guy who um, protected Jews during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, and he employed a lot of them in his factory in order to protect them, and he had many opportunities to turn them over to the Nazis, and, and he refused to do that. He wouldn't do it. He protected them. That's the exact opposite of what Edom has done here. They handed over the survivors, it says. Apparently, after the Babylonians came in, destroyed the city and left, there were still some survivors left, people who hadn't been killed. And Edom comes in and says, hey, don't forget these guys, Babylonians. Take them with you, too. And they hand over the survivors to the Babylonians. And so that's what's making God so angry. And that's why God is sending Obadiah to pronounce this judgment against these Edomites. Just a couple of lessons we learn here about the nature of sin. First of all, sin is not just what we do, but what we don't do. You know, the Edomites had an opportunity to step up. And they were passive. They just stood back. They watched. That's being judged by God. Their passivity, their unwillingness to do anything. We talk about sins of commission, things we do, but there are also sins of omission, things we're supposed to do that we don't do. The Edomites should have helped, and they didn't, and they were held accountable. You might remember, um, what was that quote by Edmund Burke? The only thing that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Out of fear of criticism or looking strange or weird or just apathy or laziness. We just don't do anything. Well, that, that's considered a sin in God's eyes. So we learn about the nature of sin, but we also learn about the progress of sin here. Little sins typically lead to big sins. It might have seemed like a little sin just being passive and not doing anything, but before too long they were actually handing over their brothers to the enemy. And that's typically how sin works. It moves in the direction of getting bigger. So, how does this show, though, that God defends his beloved people? Well, you might remember going all the way back to Genesis when God came to Abraham and he, he called on Abraham and said, Abraham, from you we're going to build this nation called Israel. And, and God said this, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. So God's saying to Israel, if there are nations that are going to dishonor my people, I'm going to curse them. 
In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to defend my people. And that's exactly what God has, has done in the case of Edom. Because do you realize, you know, when I said Edom at the start of this sermon, I think probably, probably most of you thought I've never heard that word. I've never heard of Edom. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, Edom doesn't have a place in the United Nations. You don't see Edom participating in the Olympics. You don't go to big cities and eat at Edomite restaurants. The reason why is because Edom hasn't existed for about 2,000 years. <laughs> because exactly what God said was going to happen did. Obadiah's prophecy was fulfilled and Edom has been completely eliminated. And just as God promised, he says, if someone dishonors my people, I will curse them. And God did that. So the question then is this, well, how do I know if I'm part of God's people? I mean, who, who is God's people? Particularly in, in this day, in this new covenant age. And if you look to 1 Peter, look, look what he says. In the New Testament, this is Peter writing to the church, and he says this, you church are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are all words that have been used to describe Old Testament Israel. And Peter is speaking to the church, and he says, you church, you're the chosen race now, you're the royal priesthood now, you're the holy nation, church of Jesus Christ. You are a people for my own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This promise ultimately is made to the church of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who have the confidence that God will defend his beloved people. When we look at the world today, it doesn't look like that's happening, doesn't it? It looks like the church is diminishing in its influence. It looks like it's beginning to disappear. It seems like churches are getting smaller and smaller. We see brothers and sisters being persecuted and it seems like there's this effort to stamp out the kingdom of God and it seems like it's succeeding. But friends, we have to remember the promises of God. He is not going to leave us undefended. God will vindicate his people. The church of Jesus Christ is the only indestructible people on earth and in history. And we will see that come true. One day, we will see that. It might not seem like that now, but the day is coming when God will fully and completely vindicate his people. So one last thing. God also declares his global reign. God declares his global reign. So starting at verse 15 and reading to the end of the book here, it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon, now look how it changes now. It's not just Edom and Esau or Edom and uh, Israel. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. 
The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So what in the world is that saying? <laughs> There's this shift now to, to the nations. And Esau, or Obadiah, Obadiah goes on here starting in verse 16 and he talks about this image of drinking on the holy mountain. And he says that you, all nations who have been drinking on my holy mountain, these nations shall drink continually and they shall drink and swallow. Now, all of that is a reference to an Old Testament imagery or symbol of the cup. And actually, Pastor Brian preached on this uh, a couple of months ago. The cup in the Old Testament. What does the cup symbolize? That's what is being pictured here. These nations, they're going to drink from my cup. You might remember that the cup is a symbol of God's wrath. So what God is saying here is that this threat of judgment is not just upon Edom. This is a threat upon the whole world, upon all the nations who have disregarded God and have dismissed him and rebelled against him and defied him. There is a cup that they're going to have to drink, and it's the cup of my wrath because I'm bringing down my wrath on all the nations is what Obadiah is telling us here. Now, you might recall, remember, what, what happened with that cup? Because as we get into the New Testament, we see something remarkable. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you remember when he was praying to the Father as he's about to go to the cross? And he says, oh, Father, let this, what? Cup pass. Let this cup pass. But if not, let your will be done. And what Jesus was saying is, if there's a way that I don't have to do this, that would be great. But I'm prepared to do your will, Father, and I am going to go and drink the cup. And the cup, in that case, is symbolic of the cross. What Jesus did, he went to the cross, he died there. And when he died on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath. All of God's wrath and anger against all the nations poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And that's the hope we have as we look at these minor prophets always talking about judgment and God's anger, and it's very real. But the gospel tells us that that wrath has been taken by the Savior. And if you trust in that Savior, you put your faith in Him, you rest your hope in Him alone, you have the assurance that that wrath of God will not touch you because it has been poured out upon Jesus. So, this goes on here, verses 19, 20, and 21. Obadiah mentions all of these various segments of land. They're all going to be possessed by these different groups. And, uh, you know, what, what, what does this mean? What are we going to make of this? I, I think what's happening here is this. What God is promising is that all of these segments of land are one day going to be possessed by God's people. And it's interesting to note in verses 19 to 21 how these places are kind of all around Israel. For instance, the Philistines uh, mentioned in verse 19, they're to the west. Gilead mentioned in verse 19 is up to the uh, kind of the east. Um, Zarephath mentioned in verse 20 is way up in the north. And the Negeb mentioned in verse 20 is in the south. And so what God seems to be saying is the day is coming when my people are going to spread out over the whole globe. Now, 
Israel at the time must have just thought, that's ridiculous. How could that possibly happen? We're in captive in Babylon right now. I mean, we're not even in the land right now. But God is saying, a day is coming when my people are going to spread out throughout the whole earth. And the very last phrase there is, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And that ultimately is fulfilled in our day and age right now as the gospel is being proclaimed, as the great commission is being fulfilled, as the church goes forth and makes disciples of all nations. This is being fulfilled right now as the church grows throughout the word and every throughout the world and every continent. The church growing. God's reign being made visible through the church. And we look forward to this day that is promised to us in Revelation chapter 11 where the elders are gathered around the throne and they say there were loud voices in heaven and they're saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Christ will be one and the same as God's kingdom flows and pervades the entire earth. And we're in the process of being involved in that now as the church. And we look forward to the day when Jesus comes again, when that will be fulfilled. But if you want to know, how do I become part of this kingdom? And that's really the point here. How do I become part, member of this, this group, this people of God? And the way you do that is by acknowledging Jesus is king, by bowing your knee to him, by receiving him as your savior, by receiving in Jesus the one who took the Father's wrath on your behalf. Bow your knee to him. Let him be your king and take part in this wonderful process of seeing God's kingdom expand throughout the world. Father, we thank you for the book of Obadiah. God, we believe that in this book is your holy word. And so, Lord, help us to love all of your word, not just the portions that we know, but even the portions that we overlook. Uh, thank you, Father, for this prophet and for what you've taught us today. In Jesus' name.